As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to another edition of the VanCast, a pre-draft edition, and Harmon and I would like to welcome, just 48 hours ahead of the 2023 NHL Draft, our good friend and draft expert Shane Malloy. Shane, thanks so much for doing this. Anytime, gentlemen. My pleasure. We're still, Harm is still recovering from the combine in Buffalo. You know, Buffalo tends to leave an impact on a young lad like Harm. But uh, <laughs> he's he's done uh, he's done all the prep. I know you've done all the prep. You're going to be a one-man band. Tell us about uh, your role uh, in coverage heading into it. Well, it's it's interesting. So for SiriusXM NHL Network Radio, we'll do a couple hours of preview. So I'll be on for an hour of that. And then myself and Steve Coolius and Scotty will be broadcasting from the draft floor live right beside uh, the big stage. So we'll do all of round one and then we'll do an hour of post for that. So that's day one. And then day two, I end up bouncing back and forth between probably 10 to 15 different radio broadcasts and podcasts doing analysis. So it's always super busy on draft, but it's my favorite time of the year. As much as I love the world juniors or the U 18s or the Stanley cup finals, the draft is one of my favorite times of the year. Nice. And with this draft, I mean, people have described it as the deepest draft in recent memory, both as far as the top five and, and even the top 10 and top 15. Do you see it the same way? It, it really depends on how you define deep. Or is it deep in terms of quantity? Is it deep in terms of quality? Because there are generally two different things. Well, we know it's not it's, so deep in terms of defensemen, but in terms of overall high-end talent, how do you see this draft? I think it's above average based on historical average of the salary cap era from 06 to 15. And I think from quantity, I think it's going to be slightly above average as 
as well. So historical average, you're looking at 58 players will play more than 200 games in the NHL. I have 60 players who I think are going to pl- hit that mark with another 25 uh, cup of coffee players, 100, 150 in that range. And then up top, I think the quality of this draft is really going to depend if the def- certain defensemen that are taken in the second round elevate above what's projected, you know, uh, uh, I guess idea of what they're going to be, where they're going to be. So if they're projected to be a four or five, if they move from a five to a four or a four to a three, and that quality of defenseman is higher, then I will agree with the sentiment that this could be one of the deepest drafts in quite some time. But I really don't think, Farhan, we're going to know for five years because defensemen take a little bit longer to percolate in terms of their development. And it generally, we really have to give teams that amount of track and runway before we really start to assess what they've done. Shane, I wanted to ask with Vancouver at number 11, first of all, when you look at the top 10, how do you expect it to maybe play out in in front of them? And, and what kind of players do you think could be on the board and still available around 11? And what, what type of talent would we be talking about in terms of future potential? will be interesting. It really depends on what happens with the defenseman. So what happens with Reinbacher? Does he go in the top 10 and does that push a forward down to Vancouver? Do, you know, do maybe another defenseman, whether it's, you know, Axel Sandin Pelika or Dmitry Simishev, do they bump ahead of that 11 spot? So the more defensemen that, you know, as much as Vancouver really could use a defenseman in, in their prospect pool, there could be an opportunity where a defenseman jumps in there and pushes a forward down. So would an Oliver Moore be available to them? Would be a Dalvor Dvorsky available to them? It, you know, that is really interesting in terms of what ends up happening. Because every year we've seen this, fellas, where you look at the Arizona Coyotes when they took Baird Hayden at fifth overall, and it changed the the entire draft, especially in the first 15, because no one expected it. So you hear the gasp from the crowd and the the murmurs from the table out, you know, on the draft floor. And then, so that's a possibility. You know, you look at, I think one of the things that's going to really dictate, particularly once you get past into six or seven, is whether teams will take a defenseman based on scarcity. Even though I wouldn't suggest that Reinbach or Simashev or Pelika or Tom Willander would be above a th- number three D-man in the NHL in their prime years, but if somebody really covets them, then, you know, we could see a couple defensemen go earlier than expected. So that could really benefit the Vancouver Canucks. They're in a really good spot at 11 overall. They're going to get a quality player. Well, one of the interesting things, as you highlighted, was this idea of, despite this not being a draft chock full of high-end defensemen, that sometimes teams do overdraft and and you may have guys... um, going earlier than they maybe should be relative to at least some of the high-end forwards. For Vancouver at 11 there, kind of a two-part question for starters, would taking a defenseman there, would even at 11 that maybe be a bit of a reach? Would you prefer them to maybe be be targeting a, a forward that sort of falls to them? Or, and, and second part of that, if you are insistent in Vancouver's shoes of potentially taking a defenseman, if you're eyeing one, if you would prefer one, in terms of the second best defenseman in this class beyond maybe Reinbacker, 
who we assume will probably be off the board at that point, would you lean more towards Dmitry Simashev or Tom Willander if you're in Vancouver's shoes? Well, to answer the first question, it depends on what you value. So if if you look on my board, you can you can figure out which defenseman I value as top three D-men or higher. So in this draft class, whether it's Simashev, Reinbacker, Willander, those three defensemen specifically, I think in their prime years are going to be number three defensemen. So do you value a number three defenseman over a second line forward? Because I think at 11, that's where it starts to drop off. Unless somebody slides, the Vancouver Canucks are more likely to get a second line center there. I value a third line. I value a number three defenseman over a second line player, even if it's a centerman. Because look at the acquisition cost in a trade to get a number three defenseman. What is the cost in free agency in terms of cap that you have to pay to get a number three defenseman? Both of them are generally outrageous. So if you have the opportunity to get what you deem as a number three defenseman, then I would do that first. Uh, And then to answer your second question, in in terms of my value, I have uh, Simashev first, or actually over Reinbacher. So I have Simashev, Reinbacher, and then Will Lander, and then Palika. So I have Simashev at eight, and Reinbacher at 10, and Will Lander at 13. If any of those are sitting there for the Vancouver Canucks, I wouldn't have an issue with them taking that player at that time, because I think all these, all three of these players within a three to four year period are going to be very valued assets to this organization. And look at the the Stanley Cup finals over the last five years. Look at the defense cores that have won. It's tall, rangy, you know, strong two-way defensemen who make smart first passes. They're maybe not always dynamic. But they're very hard to, de- to handle. Uh, they're very strong defensively, and they can compete when times get tough. And looking at the Vancouver Defense Corps, they could certainly use a guy who has some size but has some two-way ability, may not put up you know over 40 points in terms of Sinashev or Reinbacher, but if you can get in that 35 range and then be able to kill penalties and match up five-on-five five and be able to insulate one of their two more offensive defensemen, then I think that's a valued pick. You mentioned Simashev, and there's been a lot of talk about the Russian factor heading into the draft, and probably more so with Mitchkov. And you hear more and more that he might fall out of the top five, and you wonder, you know, I still can't see him getting out of the top ten given that talent, but if you're the Canucks, does any of that concern you at all? No, it doesn't. You can't put that type of risk upon, because what you're trying to do is it's a risk assessment of the geopolitical issues and having that player come out of Russia. I One, I don't think, based on the information that I know, that I think that is an inherent risk. Um, in the end of the day, money talks, and you can get players out of almost anywhere, of out of any contract. And, you know, so from my perspective, I don't put – I don't have a, a lot of concern with drafting a player, a Russian player, this high in the draft. Because at the end of the day, they're unlikely to – be ready for a couple of years to come over anyway. So it's fine in terms of Simashev or whether it be, you know, Mitchkov isn't going to drop that far because um, they they would never get past Washington from sure. my perspective. Uh, but I don't have those le- concerns that maybe perhaps the general media has or some individual teams have. I'm less concerned about that because at the end of the day, 
I don't think there's going to be an issue of transferring players out of Russia into the NHL. Because if it was going to be a problem, it would have started already. Simashev has made a big jump up the draft boards uh, since the beginning of the season. You know, when a guy accelerates that fast, do you, do you worry about it just in terms of an overall body of work being evaluated as opposed to maybe a level of recency bias? Because certainly, look, at 6'4", 200 pounds, he's a pretty enticing project or product. And you just wonder, you know, does he skate well enough? And, you know, have, does his overall body of work lend itself to that high of a pick? I mean, I know Bob McKenzie's got him at 19. You've got him a bit higher here. Like, where do you see just the big picture, the, the bigger body of work on him? Well, one of the things that I've noticed as a, a theme and a trend over the last 20 years is defensemen tend to charge late after Christmas. Uh, particularly if they're playing in a league that they're just starting to get comfortable with. So if you look at Semishev, you know, he played some games in the KHL. Uh, majority of his time was in the MHL and, you know, played, you know, 10 playoff games in the MHL. And it takes a little bit longer for defensemen, particularly for young defensemen playing against men, to adjust to what angles they need to take, how they need to gap. Uh, defensive habits being more consistent. So it it generally happens that defensemen charge late, uh, particularly guys who are have that lanky, rangy ability. He has the mobility. I'm not concerned about Farhan, uh, which is one of the reasons I really look at. If you have a defenseman, you have to be able to have the range. You have to have four-way ability. And then you have to have some untapped offensive upside, which I think Simishev does. Sometimes what we see in the club system in Europe, particularly for a young player, is players tend to defer to the older players and don't take the opportunity offensively that's presented to them in front of them if they were playing, say, in the USHL or the CHL, where they would have the green light to go. So that you always have to take that into consideration when you're evaluating evaluating defensemen, particularly if they're playing in Europe. Nate Danielson is another prospect that the Canucks have... Um have been sort of potentially linked to that they may have interest in as a right shot uh, centerman with some two-way qualities. The consensus seems to be more middle of the first round in terms of most draft analysts. Where do you stand? And, and I know we spoke about this a little bit at the combine when, when we met in person, but where do you stand on Danielson's game? And how would you feel if, if he's in serious consideration at, uh, at number 11? Now he, I'll be you know, honest about Danielson. I had a hard harder time getting a strong read on him. So when I do my evaluations, I've built a performance management system where I put all my data in, whether it is my tactical scouting reports, reports coming out of video, um, any analytical statistical information, any biometric information I can obtain, you know, any psychological background information I can obtain. And I put that into the system and I have it pre-weighted based on playing style and certain uh, certain positions based on the metrics of how I weight in each individual skill set and their playing biases, I press the button and it spits it out. And I had a hard time measuring between his floor and his ceiling. Now, he could be a second-line center in the NHL, and or he could be a third line, or it could be a 2-3. And I ended up leaning more on his floor than his ceiling because I would I had a hard time trying to figure it out him out and that's my own you know shortcomings as an evaluator every every person has players within a draft class that they have some issues trying to figure out so I leaned more on the floor which is why I had put him 
at 32 as a third line center, but he has the potential in his ceiling to be a second line center. So if the Canucks deem that it, the highest probability for him to play in his core years of 24 to 30 is as a second line center, then at 11, that's an appropriate sort of range. If you're looking at 11 to 16 to put him in, if they do that, that's just simply a conversation I'll end up having with, you know, Patrick Alvin or, you know, the, one of their staff members about what, how did they evaluate his ceiling versus floor to figure out from where, from where they were thinking to get a better assessment if they take him there. I personally, I wouldn't take him there. I'd rather take a defenseman, but if they do, um, you know, that's something that you can justify. And one of the things I notice, and it's something that, you know, a lot of people, if you're just looking at different people's rankings, is that the difference between five spots in the first round is not significant. A difference between 10 spots, 12 spots in a second round is equally in, insignificant. So when people start, you know, talking about, oh, you had this guy at 15 and you had this guy at 10, it's really more your splitting hairs in terms of what your preferences of that player is in terms of his position, his playing style, and then how do you rate his floor versus ceiling? One of the other interesting things about the the Canucks going into this um, draft is that they don't have any second round picks, but they have two thirds and three fourths. Is this the type of draft class where it'd be worth, or, or maybe just even generally speaking, if you're in this type of situation where you have surplus mid-round picks, but no second do you think it's worth trading up to get into the second round? Always. Always. And the reason I say that is historical average is only 58 players going to play 200 games in the NHL. So most of the majority of them are going to be in the first two rounds. So if you have the opportunity to go get that, I would do that. So they have the two, two thirds and three fourths. So look, you got to look to the teams in the late second round who have multiple picks. Seattle has 52 and 57. Anaheim is 59 and 60. Chicago is 51 and 55. If I could package those two thirds and those three fourths to go get two late seconds, uh, by all means, I would be trying to do that. And as an example, I'd look back at the LA Kings draft a couple of years ago where they did the same thing. They traded away all their late round picks like fourth and later and they kept moving up into the into like into the third and into the second very aggressively targeting players that they wanted and i had a conversation with mark and eddie who was their director of amateur scouting about that strategy and i agreed with the strategy if you like a certain if you think a certain player is x go get them because the probability of getting players in the fourth round and later is so astronomically low like for an example, in the salary cap era, say from 06 to 15, the number of players that you get out of the fourth to seventh rounds that'll play more than 200 games is 15 per draft. That's it. That's not even a half a player per team right at this at this point. So if you can move picks out of that and get into those late second rounds, I would do it. I would target it and not worry about that you may only had four picks in the draft class. So you have one in the second. If you can get a couple in like maybe late second or early third, I would do it and go target specific players. Talking to Shane Malloy from Sirius XM as he gets set for the draft coming up in a couple of days. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue to dr dive into all things draft and all things Canucks. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the VanCast. Just a reminder, my appearance on the show brought to you by my good friends at Key West Ford in New Westminster. Shane Malloy from SiriusXM joins Harm and I as we look ahead to the draft. And I want to ask you about these the centers, right? So you talked about Nate Danielson, and obviously we're not talking about the guys in the top five, but you talked about Nate Danielson. Let's look at um, a few of these other names that the Canucks are looking at that potentially many have, have ranked outside the top ten, Oliver Moore. Uh, from the U.S. Uh, development program. You've got Brandon Yeager, uh, and you've also got um, Otto uh, Stenberg from uh, from Sweden. And all of these guys are a little bit undersized. Danielson's got a little more uh, meat on his bones and physically appears to be maybe a little more immediately ready, if not necessarily the high-end skill. Take me through those three names. Uh, you know, And obviously, it's an interest for the Canucks because center's a priority in terms of which of those center's undersized centers, it might be a little more ready. Well, we'll start with Oliver Moore. And the difference between him is his skating ability, his ability to really be disruptive with his skating ability. And there will be at times where he's going to have to learn to be able to change his speed and pace to match what's going on in front of him, just to create time and space for himself and for his linemates. But it's such a disruptive aspect of his game that it's going to cause mismatches for, you know, for defenders long-term. And I like the fact, you know, he, he's going to be able to go to college for a couple of years. Uh, I would even prefer players to play, play three, but you know, it's unlikely if Moore is taken, you know, around that 11th spot uh, for the Vancouver Canucks. If he's there at 11, go grab him. I mean, it, that would be a hard debate between depending if there's defensemen available and Oliver Moore only because what I like about him is he's a line driver and he can make, you know, linemates around him better by utilizing his speed and create and time and space. And he's a guy that will play in a lot of different positions uh, throughout the lineup in terms of putting him in different scenarios. Uh, he'll be, he could be a dangerous, you know, second line power play guy. He'll be, he'll be dangerous on the penalty kill because of his speed. So I think there is great value for him. And I have Oliver Moore at seven because, you know, coaches love versatility in players and be able to use them in a lot of different situations. And then you look at, you know, Brennan Yeager is a little bit smaller, a little more undersized, but is certainly more often offensive oriented. Uh, he's going to require some time to refine some of his defensive habits. And that's fine because that's what's expected at the junior level. Um, all, you know, offensive minded players have issues with off their off puck tendencies and their habits. They just, you know, 
you collect bad junior habits because you're allowed to get away with some things at the junior level, but he's smart enough to, to move through that, um, you know, size. I'm not as necessarily concerned if his power to weight ratio is good and he's strong, um, as long as he's a strong player. So you got to give him some time for that. I don't like throwing 20 year olds into the American hockey league. It's a bit of a grinder. So he's going to have to be prepared for that. And then Otto Stenberg, I have it. I have him at 23 and I find Otto, like if you're looking at him on a non-playoff team, he has the ability and potential to play a second line role. But if you're going into the playoffs, I think he would be more suited as a third line player. So sort of look at it kind of like a Michael Backlund from Calgary, that type of centerman, but really valuable. He's a guy that's going to be able to kill penalties, match up five on five, which I think is really critical. Five on five play to me is one of the most important um, aspects to, to grade on a player, whether a defenseman or a forward. And he's a guy that's going to be able to second unit power play penalty kill a matchup player for your coach. So, but I wouldn't necessarily take auto at 11 and I wouldn't take Jaeger at 11, but I, I certainly would take Oliver Moore at 11. Who's the one player in this draft that you think is going to surprisingly fall? There's always one. Who surprisingly fall. I mean, it could be Gabe Perot. Um, only because of skating is a concern and you don't have to be a, like a super fast skater to be an effective skater. Look at Mark Stone with Vegas. He's not the fastest skater, Tyler Toffoli, not the most fleet of foot, but they're really effective skaters. So for Gabe Perot, he has to learn to be an effective skater for what power output he has. I saw him at the combine. He's a, he's a very skinny kid in terms of his legs. Like Farhan, you're a football coach for a long time. I'm sure you had players who had chicken legs and it's always a concern in terms of power output and then how much um, endurance they're going to have and how much, you know, how dur durable they're going to be as well. So for me, he's a guy who's is going to need to play two years in college to see how much you can power and weight and muscle you can put on that frame because that should certainly be a concern. Last draft-related question I wanted to ask you before we shift gears here. I know we've talked about a lot of different prospects, a lot of different possibilities. I want to throw one mock scenario at you. So Corey Pronman just the other day did uh, a full mock draft, and this is just to present a hypothetical scenario. And, and, in, and in that scenario, let's say you know Bedard's gone, Fentilli's gone, Carlson, Smith, Reinbacker, Dvorsky, Leonard, Michkov, Perot, and Willander to St. Louis at uh, at 10, which leaves you with the likes of Nate Danielson, Matt Wood, Simashev, Benson, um, Barlow, Moore, Jaeger, all these guys on the board. Who would your pick for the Canucks be at number 11? Who would your top target be? Simashev. I have him at number eight. So I went through the list as you were, and I had Zach Benson at nine, but I'll follow my list and take a, a number three defenseman over those players. Cause I think the majority of those players are going to be second line forwards. Very good ones, but I value a third line or a number three defenseman over a second line forward every day, just in terms of the value to the organization and to, you know, try and if you had to obtain one, 
the cost in in free agency or in trade are you know usually ridiculous. So for me, it's Simashev. I like that. I, I like Simashev as uh, as well. Shifting gears now a little bit before we specifically get into this specific Canucks offseason and and what they can do with uh, with the cap space they have. I'm curious because you know like Farhan and I, Grant, all of us were so invested in the micro and, and we follow this team on a day by day basis and. I know Shane. In addition to your draft coverage, you are hyper focused on the NHL as a whole, and and you can kind of look at it from more of a two hundred foot perspective. And of course, you have the perspective and 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 the connections with a lot of different executives and, and teams around the league. So you have a very um, well rounded view, a, maybe a different view than than we have. What's your big picture view been on? the Alvin Rutherford regime so far? They've been in charge for 18 months. They've made a lot of moves. What have you learned about this management group and what's your confidence level in the organization's ability to execute a retool that can su- successfully build a contender around Pedersen and Hughes? Well, first off, I mean... The most important thing that has to be established is your organizational identity. And I think there's been a disconnect uh, within the stakeholders, which obviously be fans, uh, with the media, which is another stakeholder, as well as any of your sponsors as well. I think there's been a bit of a disconnect of what the organizational identity is of the Canucks. What are they? What do they stand for? What are their values? What are their core values? Because they're considered a have legacy organizational identity which is different from a company like hewlett-packard like there is like the uh intensity of the stakeholders and what they mean to that organization is vastly different than any other type of a fortune 500 company so that to me is something that the president and the general manager have to ensure that that every piece of communication that they come up with it has to go funnel through what our core values are and you plant that flag and you never deviate from it and the reason why you can't is one of two things either if you deviate from it in your communication one of two things that are happening either people will say we you don't they don't think you have a very strong belief system or two you're lying to me either way that's bad so i'm waiting to see the consistency of that coming from obviously ownership down through to to the president and the general manager. So if that remains consistent, that alleviates one thing. And then it is the balance between, you know, retooling and rebuilding. You can do two things at once. You don't necessarily have to be either or. It's not a zero-sum game. So the balance for the Canucks is going to be, can we still draft players and not give up draft picks and still even if we don't, we don't have a large accumulation of them. But if we have our one, two, three round draft picks every year, then can we retool and keep those at the same time so that we we at least have a steady stream of prospects coming into your system? Because they have to do both. Because what was left over in terms of the prospect pool is really poor, and they don't have a choice. You can't afford to rob Peter to pay Paul in this situation. If they had come in with a flush farm system, that'd be a different story. You have some flexibility, but they don't have that flexibility. So their margin of error is very small. Like every time they make a trade, every time they make an acquisition to free agency, they can't afford to be given up draft picks or prospects in, 
in that process in any in any way. They have to re- retain what they have. So that's going to require their free agency to hit home run, not necessarily home runs, but they have to get value. You have to look towards, you look like a team like Colorado, for example. Their draft and developing in the salary capper was awful. They were in the bottom. They were last. They were so bad. But what that organization did exceptionally well is they won the vast majority of their trades and their free agent signings were very good in terms of getting value. So can the Canucks do that? They don't have to hit home runs, but they can't have poor signings that are going to turn bad in a in a year or two, and their trades have to have value without giving up draft picks. So that's the that's the big interest to me is can this management group do that? And then the other factor is player development. So they've completely revitalized and changed their player development department and their strategies. The difficulty of assessing that is there's no proof of concept. So I don't know. Like these are like a lot a lot of people are new to player development. So there isn't a track record to gauge them from. So there's a little bit of unknown of trying to assess how that's going to play out. So the best thing you can do is look at what happened in the last year with their prospects in the American League and where there was their progress. All you want is progress and momentum. So those are really the first three things that I look at from an organi- overall overarching organizational standpoint. As you ask about uh, player development, I want to ask you about two players who've kind of been developed uh, at different rates, and and probably many fans expected them to have developed faster this year, given what they were allowed to do in previous years, and that's Vasily Podkolzin and Nils Hoaglander. Uh, certainly an opportunity for both those guys to be in the big club next year. Uh, who do you see taking that next step of those two players and what's needed there? I think they both have to take a next step. I think both of them have to play in the NHL on a third line. I would put them there between, and I know they're on, you know, they've been on record as saying we're looking for a third line center, but that's where I would put those two players where they can be insulated and play a lot of minutes against third pairing D and not have to do the heavy lifting of the, in a top two line scenario and allow them to they're going to make some mistakes obviously as young players but i think they've shown enough in the american league last year that their habits are more consistent in terms of off puck play that i would be comfortable with putting them in there and one of the reasons you also have to put them in there it's a matter of salary cap management like you just can't afford to keep going out and adding veterans who are going to cost twice as much as their sal- their salary sooner or later they have to play and i think at this point now it's it's sooner and i'm one who's patient with prospects like i'm always uber patient but i think these these two players are at a point where it's either like sit on the pot and do your business or you got to move them but i think it's time for them to play and i think they've earned that opportunity to play absolutely in going into this offseason the canucks have some cap flexibility to play with now after the oel buyout of course, they're going to have to address multiple positions. They're going to have to, you know, try and find help on the back end. Obviously, try and find another bottom six centerman. But there may only be an opportunity to, you know, let's say add one sort of impact player. What do you rank as as the higher organizational priority for next season in terms of what management is trying to do in, in qualifying for the playoffs next year? Would it be 
because Farhan and I disagreed on this, would it be top four D on the back end or that third line center? Honestly, I wouldn't go with an impact player at all. I would actually go in terms of more of an equilibrium. So looking at what weaknesses do they have on the back end, they need two defensive defensemen. They need two defensemen who can insulate more off their more their two more offensive defensemen. They need guys who can be able to kill penalties. They need guys who can break up plays below the circle. They need defensemen who can clear the front of the net. And they got to have a couple defensemen who got a little bit of snarl in their game. They need to have some balance on that back end. You can't just have these dynamic two-way defensemen throughout your lineup. Look through the playoffs. It's just, it doesn't you need some players with that type of mentality. So I would actually target more players, more like Scott Mayfield out of the Islanders. Now you try not to give him too much term because he's a 30 year old defenseman, but he fits that mold. Another guy is Carson Susie, who's 28. who could play the left side and the right side. Scott Mayfield plays the right side. Both of them shouldn't command a tremendous amount of money, but you can offer them maybe a little extra year in term and then opportunity to play and insulate a guy like, you know, Hughes and, you know, Horonic. And that's what your role is going to be on that team. And you're going to kill penalties and then go get a third line center. I would actually stay away from the more top end free agencies and understand what pool that you're fishing in, because it's really about balancing out that lineup. And I know, you know, the push is to go look for um, a player that is more impact but they simply just don't have the salary cap room and they also have too many holes to do that. So I would look at it from more of an economic standpoint is how can I build more equilibrium throughout my roster construction to allow for that, to help those two offensive defensemen be better and feel better about their game when they have somebody to back them up all the time. Uh, I use an example in LA. Who did Drew Doughty play with? You know, Rob Scuderi, Willie Mitchell. They play a very similar style to what Mayfield and Susie do. And you need those guys in the lineup to help them. It's one of the reasons Buffalo made that signing for Matias Samuelson. They gave him $4 million and Twitter went bananas and lost their mind because they had a hard time, who were people are analysts, trying to measure the value of defense. But does Samuelson make Rasmus Dallin feel better about his game? Does he like playing with him? Does he give them that level of insulation and comfort? He does. So it's no different than what Luke Shen had provided for that defense core and for Luke Hughes uh, last year. So for me, those would be the guys I'd target. And then I'd target a third line center. And you're probably going to have to move a, a, a one of these wingers off your roster in some sort of trade to be able to facilitate all three. Otherwise, you're probably only going to get two out of three. Shane, we're going to wrap here. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, we appreciate it. We know you got a lot to get to over the next two days uh, heading into the draft. So uh, thanks so much for making the time for us, and uh, we'll talk again real soon. Absolutely, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. That is uh, Shane Malloy from SiriusXM. The NHL draft just two days away. Canucks with six picks in the first four rounds, and then free agency comes just a few days after that. Harm, I know you're going to be busy, my friend. What do you got coming up on The Athletic? A uh, lot. Uh, my brain's worrying right now. Uh, obviously related to whatever the Canucks do around the draft. Uh, a lot of national coverage as well. I think it's more wait and see to react to whatever the Canucks do at this point because we've done a lot of previewing this week on 
Canucks potential targets in terms of free agency and trade and what they could do with cap space value guys so uh, now I'm more so excited to see the actual action yeah no me too uh, looking forward to it especially that Ekman Larson buyout certainly seems to be pointing in a direction to set the table for a secondary move so we'll see if it gets that way when they're on the draft floor and for us we will make sure that um, on Wednesday if the Canucks make a move we will do a live room that night Failing that, we will wait until Thursday night when the draft wraps up uh, to get our live room in and, and make sure that we provide you with the coverage you need from a Canuck perspective. Uh, so that should be a lot of fun with the draft taking place in Nashville. Sadly, I will not be in Nashville. It's one of the great cities in North America and always fun when they put on an event. Other things going on, uh, Max Boltman and Corey Pronman will put out three different podcasts on the draft. Tuesday, Wednesday, post-round one, and a Friday recap of the week in Nashville. That is next week on the Athletic Hockey Show. And again, you can get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $1 a month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. Thanks for doing this. For Harm, I'm Farhan. We'll talk again next week. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.